Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bliss Cleveland, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Dr. Lee McGuigan. Dr. McGuigan is an assistant professor in the University of North Carolina's Hussman School of Journalism and Media. His scholarship focuses on the history and political economy of advertising, media, and information technology. In today's conversation, we will discuss Dr. McGuigan's latest monograph, Selling the American People, Advertising, Optimization, and the Origins of Ad Tech, published by MIT Press in 2023. It's a thought-provoking book that takes on a socio-technical and historical view of marketing to show how the conditions for ad tech that exist today existed long before the advent of the widespread adoption of digital technologies. Welcome, Dr. McGregor. I'm looking forward to hearing more about your work. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to start out by hearing about how you came to conduct the research that led to this book. Sure. Um, I came into it sort of backwards. Like I didn't set out to write a book about ad tech per se. I was interested in consumer culture and I had an interest in media history um, and advertising, but I was more focused on um, more contemporary uses of interactive and addressable advertising in television, uh, which I guess turned out to be sort of an interesting thing to study because as I spent time listening in on the places where people in that industry talk about their business, what I heard them expressing was a lot of anxiety about what they need to do to keep up with digital advertising. And in doing that, what they basically articulated was what they saw as the capabilities of digital advertising, or at least what their customers were pushing them toward in order to match those sorts of capabilities. So that got me um, thinking about a set of concepts that they kept talking about, addressability, uh, shopability, uh, accountability. And I recognized these eventually as what we might call affordances or like potential abilities that they were ascribing to new digital technologies. Um, that not only said something about the technology, but said something 
important about what they wanted to use the technology for. And so I started looking to see where some of these concepts versus addressability. And it went back much further than I thought, in, at least in terms of looking at television primarily. Um, and so I just kept following these threads backward, first looking at interactive television, then looking at um, the forms of automation that we now call programmatic advertising. And uh, when I looked at them through the lines of these like affordances or ideas about what people could do with technology, it became clear to me that actually these were like very old ideas that reflected very deep desires, priorities and ambitions that people in this industry have been pursuing for a long time um, and attaching to a variety of technologies as a way to sort of get this project a more efficient, rational, and optimized advertising. And then talk to me a little bit about the title, that phrase sort of selling the American people. It's great because it works on multiple levels. Yeah, so I took it from um, the transcript of a speech I found printed in an issue of Broadcasting Magazine, which is a, a trade publication that covers uh, television and radio industries. Um, and anyway, it was a speech by an executive from a TV station in Los Angeles, and he was talking, he's basically trying to pitch television to advertisers in the area, saying, look, uh, something to the effect of, you, you know, a medium with which people spend like six hours a day is something that shouldn't be overlooked by people, by advertising interests. Like, what he meant was like, if you want to persuade people to buy your products, you should be using television. But then as you point out, it's got this sort of second connotation that we can extract from it, that you know, that particular wording also suggests this set of processes involved in packaging and selling audiences to advertisers, which people in the field of media communication studies that for a long time talked about as being you know, the organizing principle of ad support. They produce and sell audiences where audience, uh, audience commodities. Um, and so I found it to be the sort of nifty shorthand for referring to these twin processes of trying to accelerate the circulation of commodities through advertising and trying to package moments of attention as investment opportunities. I see those as being sort of the two uh, key elements of ad-supported media um, that work sometimes together, sometimes in conflict. Uh, and so I think it's important to deal with both of them. But um, this idea that selling the American people is the underlying motor of this business I think helps to explain a lot of the developments related to technology and data that I look at in the book. And just to be clear, uh, it's not an exclusively American phenomenon, even though my book is focused on the U.S. context. Um, so I use the term because it's a shorthand, not so much to say that this is exclusively applicable to the American context. And then there's also this phrase, sort of advertising's calculative evolution. And you use that to describe the context that allowed for surveillance advertising to flourish. Can you talk a little bit more about this term and sort of what it captures? Sure, I'd be happy to. I should say that if my our PhD supervisor is listening, he'll be ruining because he strongly suggests that I not use this term. He thought it's clunky. No one's going to like the sound of that. And maybe he's right. Uh, but uh, I found it useful so that 
the, the thing to understand about this term calculative evolution is you need to know that in talk about the history of advertising, there's a much more uh, well-known phrase of the creative revolution. So the sort of canonical account of advertising history is that starting in the late 1950s, which is where I start most of the story that I tell in the book, um, what happened in advertising is that the major advertising agencies basically thrown their back off the era of science, rationality, bureaucracy, all these sort of like corporate values that were associated with advertising culture as a business culture in the 1950s. And instead, advertising embraced these ideas like individuality, difference, uniqueness, spontaneity, youth cultures, and, and even it's shot through with this sort of countercultural uh, valence. And so this is when you see advertisements start, and, and particularly the, like the creative outputs of the ad industry starting to be more, you know, sly, joking, you know, more winking, sort of uh, understated, self-derogatory, um, and these sorts of things, like a more, a funnier, more use-oriented style of advertising as compared to, you know, a harder sell technique. Um, and, uh, so this is basically this creative revolution is the way people generally characterize what was happening in advertising in the 1960s. And I found it interesting because when I looked at other parts of the advertising world, so when I stopped, when you stop focusing on the creative production of advertisements and instead started to think of advertising as a sort of institution that connects a variety of actors and produces, for one thing, lots of texts that aren't advertisements. Um, particularly looking at the research and media buying departments within advertising agencies. That decade is actually marked by a very different set of circumstances, one where uh, the industry is not at all moving away from rationality, efficiency, science, but very much embracing computerization. And what I talk about is management sciences, like operations research, which were very oriented around mathematical approaches to optimization using quantitative models, algorithms, and uh, combining that with computer, with digital computer processing. Um, and those tools were seen to be very applicable to the sorts of problems and decisions that had to be made in the media department at an ad agency where you're making, you know, validating, maximizing decisions within the constraints of a budget. So um, I use the term calculative evolution. One has a sort of rhetorical contrast to the creative revolution that at the same time there seemed to be this supposedly creative development. There's this parallel thing going very much uh, in, a, in, a, in a different way. Um, and then also to suggest like the long arc of this whole thing that even though I look at basically developments from the 1950s outward, that's an inflection point in a longer set of developments. Um, you know, starting with the fact that basically throughout the modern history of advertising, there have been at least some people who have either had an appetite for science or have felt that speaking in a language of science and calculation was going to, you know, help them present themselves as legitimate, authoritative, and ultimately, you know, trustworthy for you to invest your money in. Um, so. You know, it's part of this longer arc of market research and uh, quantitative reasoning and use of information technologies in advertising. So, 
Another phrase that comes up sort of early on in the book is this ideology of optimization. How did this become the dominant ideology that advertisers, agencies, and media companies turn to in the latter half of the 20th century? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a complicated process. I'll, I'll focus most on how it's, I think it sort of enters the business, which was through the uptake of op operations research and management science. Um, so as I mentioned, operations research is that a, a science of optimization that was developed primarily for military applications in World War II, and has other applications as well, but that the military context really put the stamp on what operations research meant in the U.S. in the middle of the century. Um, and so, I think, as I described in the book, it's sort of paradigmatic application is figuring out how to use an available stock of bombs to destroy the most submarines. That's like a classic operations research problem. Um, and so people advertising, though, looked at that problem and basically saw their own reflection. They saw that that's basically what we do is try and figure out how to use this available stock of money we have to send commercial missives at these targets. Um, so there's like a, there's almost this parallel resonance in between military language and advertising language. But in this sense, there was like a very direct borrowing of techniques and personnel. And so after World War II, there was a variety of efforts to sort of uh, stimulate the expansion of operations research into corporate environments. And so lots of big, uh, big companies like DuPont, General Electric, General Motors, these companies are investing in operations research or hiring operations researchers. Um, not necessarily just for advertising. Lots of it had to do with production and distribution processes. Um, operations research is very much a logistical, like oriented toward logistics. And so, you know, things like shipping, warehousing, scheduling of product of like, you know, uh, the batch production of chemicals, for example, is something that a company like DuPont was very interested in. Um, but there's also resonance with advertising applications. Um, you see this in, or in some of the early writing about operations research that even people who were writing about military context recognized that you could use these theories and these tools uh, of optimization for allocating marketing resources most efficiently. Um, so there's a, there's already a certain risk that as companies like DuPont and General Electric are hiring these people, advertising agencies start to recognize that they better get along hiring these people or else their clients are going to be more sophisticated than they are. And so in the late 1950s, the biggest advertising agencies start to hire operations researchers as consultants. Um, and it, it goes pretty hand in hand with digital computerization. Uh, they, so they start working on these models uh, to try and solve media selection problems. That's the problem of basically deciding how are you going to use the client's budget to most effectively achieve their objectives by buying, you know, available media inventory, by buying audiences, right? How are we going to buy audiences to most effectively reach the people we want and achieve the objectives, um, which can be a very complicated problem, especially as the media ecosystem was becoming more complex. There were more television stations magazines uh there were also changes in television that meant that more there were more uh particularly television moved away from a direct sponsorship model toward a spot uh, or like participating sponsorship model 
what that meant is that the inventory of advertisements was much, much larger. You know, instead of sponsoring a whole show, now each show has commercial blocks with a bunch of smaller segments point being that for a media planner, they now face the situation where the number of plausible configurations for a media schedule that might satisfy the client's objectives within the budget could number in the millions. Um, and so how do you quickly come up with the best media plan to fit these objectives? Well, you can use these models um, and particularly you can put them on, can use computers in concert with them to very quickly calculate it and come up with what people would claim was the best possible media plan uh, to be fully optimized. Um, and so that was the sort of media optimization models, which, you know, today they're still uh, part of the furniture advertising agencies and they persisted throughout in not in like the earliest models were not uniformly successful. Many of them were way more sophisticated than they needed to be. Um, and they were, resistance against them some of them didn't work particularly well but it definitely um, gave a set of material resources and also symbolic resources that the people in the business could use to tell stories about perfect efficient optimal economic activity um, and these models sort of like structured decision making to give an account of a decision that was made optimally and rationally um which was very powerful for a business that, particularly for advertising agencies, is a business that makes decisions on behalf of a client, decisions that are always uncertain, not at all guaranteed to pan out, yet are made all the time routinely as a matter of course, uh, and need some justification. So this ideology of optimization um, gave some very powerful uh, narrative tools for helping to justify these sorts of decisions. Importantly, you write that sort of defining ad tech is tricky and that while it typically refers to internet-based advertising companies, the term also sort of encompasses a broader set of processes. Can you say more about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, typically, as you said, when people are talking about ad tech, they're talking about what they call programmatic advertising or even more specifically, they want to talk about real-time bidding, which is basically these automated auctions that in a fraction of a second determine what ads are going to appear on websites at what prices and so on. Um, and there's all these like uh, logistical infrastructures and information infrastructures that support these things happening. Excuse me. And so I, I, mean, I certainly want to include all of those infrastructures when we're thinking about ad tech. Um, and, and so for me, what ad tech really means is Basically, any set of technologies and tools that are involved in generating, processing, and coordinating flows of information and commerce related to advertising. Um, and so I don't want it to only mean, you know, the fanciest algorithms. I want it to mean also the mundane spreadsheets. These are part of this whole ad tech repertoire. Um, but maybe the most important thing that I want to include in the definition of ad tech is these sort of like fantasies of progress that are always implied in it. That ad tech's not just like an actually existing set of technologies and companies and markets, but it's this promise of progress. You know, whether we call it programmatic, whether we call it optimization models or whatever, it's this dream of better, of more perfect, uh, 
it's it's like this solutional idea about finding ways to move the needle towards satisfying ambitions or meeting the challenges that face people involved in this business of selling the American people. Um, and so I, I, I think that's an important element of thinking about what ad tech is, is how it works as a sort of fairy tale of efficiency. I like that phrase a lot, sort of ad tech as the promise of progress, even if that promise is false at times. You know, you outlined some of the sort of documented problems with respect to how algorithms and AI can replicate existing biases. And your book sort of adds that discrimination is not just a side effect of ad tech. It's the point of it. Uh, tell me more about that. Sure. Um, I mean, the the promise of what ad tech or more broadly data-driven advertising is trying to offer is that these systems can recognize and act on differences in value behavior. I mean, and ultimately in the maximizing the difference between profit and cost. Um, and I want to be clear that like when I say discrimination, discrimination here, what I mean is recognizing and acting on difference. And so, um, I mean, there are obvious, obviously like illegal forms of discrimination, and I think people in the ad tech business, and I'm sure many of them, I think, are you know well-meaning people. So I don't mean to suggest that everyone who works in ad tech, um, you know, is a proponent of the nefarious discrimination. What um, someone like Oscar Vian would call rational discrimination, organizing people into groups and rank ordering them based on some economic calculus of value, not based on you know. Uh, a malicious intent to disadvantage people based on a prejudice of some sort. Um, but of course, you know, in a society that's stratified along all sorts of lines of cumulative disadvantage, uh, it reproduces those anyway. Um, but the point uh, that I want to make is that what ad tech claims to do is basically recognize the difference between an opportunity that's going to yield two pennies or one penny. Um, and to be able to act on those differences as quickly as possible. Um, and and I do want to suggest that this is like the logic that's really fundamental to ad supported media all the way through. You know, we have this sense that before the internet, um, or maybe before cable, if we're even going to go back that far, but many people will say just before the internet, you know, it was a mass media era. Advertisers just wanted to meet, reach the largest possible audience, uh, irrespective of the differences among them. Um, and while it's true that there were lots of limitations in the ways that uh, media audiences could be packaged and bought and sold, um, and for some advertisers, they believed that the market for their product was everyone, there's just lots of evidence to suggest that advertisers were thinking very carefully about how to carve up the you know consumer populations according to their value going way back. And we're pushing for ways of buying those audiences in ways that could better discriminate along these differences in value that they perceived or attached to uh, various types of people. Um, so I think in a sense what ad tech does, um, particularly in digital environments, but generally is to like sort of uh, create the conditions whereby differences can be attached to various users or even like different moments of a single user's existence uh, and then capitalized upon uh, 
So that difference becomes a correlation of a difference in value that can then be exploited for arbitrage or some other economic maneuver. At one point, sort of the book defines sort of this interest-based advertising versus the more programmatic aspects of ad tech. Can you share a little bit about the differences between these features? Uh, and I should say they kind of overlap. So behavioral or interest-based advertising means basically that the ads that a person sees are going to be conditional on, uh, you know, records of what that person has done in the past. Usually it's like records of websites a person's been to, things they've read, things they've put in their shopping cart. The idea being by seeing what someone has done in the past, we have a better shot of predicting what they're likely to do in the future. And when people put this in the language of interest-based advertising, the implication is like, well, we learn what people are interested in and serve them advertisements that are going to be so immensely relevant to their interests, which is more of a sleight of hand, really, because uh, they define what they companies define what relevant means. And when they say interest-based, what they really mean is you are interesting to them as a you project out a high lifetime value rather than anything about whether the ad will be interesting to you necessarily. Although there's variations to that. Um, so behavioral advertising refers to the strategy of customizing the ads that someone sees based on records of their past behavior. A programmatic advertising refers to basically a set of processes for facilitating advertising transactions, targeting. So it sort of envelops programmatic advertising. Lots of programmatic advertising is behavioral advertising in that the decision to bid on the chance to serve an ad to someone is based on a profile information about that user and some, you know, projection about what that will mean for their likely value and their likely future behavior. Um, but so programmatic is really like the automation of ad transaction processes. Um, that facilitates this business to happen at the speed and scale that it does. And then something the book does really, really well is sort of dispel this notion that at, that the advertising industry is simply about sort of creating advertisements and making sales. And I think the socio-historical view of the field sort of really underscores that point. When you call advertising sort of a strand of capitalist technoscience, can you say more about how this describes the sort of industry logic that was present even before ad tech sort of came into existence as we know of it now? Sure, yeah. And this kind of gets back to why I like to use this calculative evolution term to suggest that, that advertising has for a long time been a, an organized field of knowledge production that takes advantage of whatever scientific and technological tools, team useful to people working in the business to try and you know, make claims about consumers, to try and guess what they're going to be interested in, to try and assess their value. Um, sometimes because they believe that they really can, you know, better serve consumers through these things or better target their advertising or sometimes because it is very impressive to clients uh, to see them using these tools. Um, but so, you know, advertising when you look beyond the creative production of advertisements as a particular form of texts, you see that advertising as an institution is involved in constructing consumer populations in, you know, uh, 
conducting or directing money through media systems or not in all sorts of forms of research, data collection, um, that connect to all sorts of other institutions in society and affect people's life choices, affect the way we see the world, affect the way we think about and orient ourselves to various groups of people, groups whose very existence might be a product of advertising research. Um, so it's very, advertising is very much involved in constructing, uh, making claims about gender, race, class, identity, all these sorts of things, not only through the strategic creation of messages about people, but through the collection of information about them, through the like internal construction or narration of different types of people and their identities, um, that have all sorts of implications for how people are seen and what opportunities are available to them in their day-to-day lives. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So something that sort of shocked me as I was reading the book was um, you talk about some of some of what was going on, even though sort of mid-century is sort of your anchor point for some of the rapid changes in the advertising industry. You give us a little preview of um, sort of the early days, the salad days of the advertising industry. So what was going on with their data collection in the late 1800s? like early 1900s you gotta you gotta share a little more about that sure um well market research really gets going in earnest in the 1910s um behind a variety of impulses one of which is to you know get a better sense of what people are attending to mass media products so right as soon as you have a situation where you know, the majority of the funding for things like magazines, and of course, lots of newspapers is coming from advertising. You get this anxiety about whether or not people are reading your ads, or whether or not you're getting it. If, if the idea is that you're buying an audience, then you want to uh, know some things about that audience. And so um, there's a variety of techniques being developed, um, some of them quite haphazard, uh, including one that I think I know you mentioned to me earlier about uh, the idea. So the Curtis Media Publishing Company, the Curtis, Curtis Publishing Company was a big publisher in Philadelphia, published the Ladies uh, Home Journal, the Saturday Evening Post, two of the largest vehicles of advertising in the early 20th century, and one of the uh, pioneers of market research. And one thing that I mentioned in the book was that one method they had in collecting information about people was to collect their trash. And to take a look through it. Um, now, the, really, the, the 
insight to take away from all this is that they were scavenging for information wherever they could find it. And anywhere that they could dig through people's lives and try and get a sense of how certain people live, um, that was going to help them understand their audience. In the case of Curtis, at least, to, to sell their audiences to advertisers um, and collect all that valuable information. Um, I should say, of course, they you know there was only certain types of people they were interested in. This was very much a white middle class and upper middle class they were interested in. Um, but they started to basically, in relation to the previous question, they were constructing people as information in a certain sense, you know, turning people's lives into forms of data that they could manage and use to try and better manage the future, which is always a concern that advertising is dealing with. That gave me a whole new perspective on sort of like the internet, like cookie, the idea of like, oh, when you come to our website, you know, we collect cookies to see what you're looking at. And I was, okay, well, now that I knew that, now that I know that sort of you guys used to go through people's trash, like a cookie seems like that that's okay. I'm okay with that. Like it was a conditioning mechanism. Well, you know, another thing that they would do sometimes, and Curtis Publishing, I believe that this, well, uh, it would go inside the home to look at your cookies. So like um, they would call these pantry audits. And the idea was like, let's get a sense of whether people are buying the things they hear about on the radio. So, you know, of course they enroll people to be part of this sample. And then a researcher goes into the all and takes a look at uh, what kind of food items they have and whether or not those are the food items that they'd been advertising on the radio. Uh, yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. And then sort of moving back to sort of this mid-century inflection point, there appeared to be a pretty steady but then rapid adoption of computerization in the advertising industry. Um, and even sort of this rise up operations research and management science at sort of advertising agencies and corporations after World War II. But then even as these changes were being adopted, there were also industry sort of critics of these moves. Can you walk me through some of these critiques? Sure. Yeah. Um, many of them, I think, were motivated by anxiety about how, you know, these new tool technologies and the experts who claim to have the authority over them would threaten the status and autonomy of people who weren't masters of these technologies. Um, and there's, very, there's a variety of angles with which people critique these, some being, you know, detail-oriented and some being more broad. Um, there was, you know, the general concern, which is very much like what we continue to see, uh, where people react against computerization and automation as being dehumanizing, right? So, um, you know, people whose uh, position in the business uh, and whose job depended on their social relationships or maybe on like some particular expertise that they claim to have, like, you know, experience and intuition. Um, those things were threatened by a management culture that said we're interested in rationalization and objectivity and in computation. Um, and so, you know, they, they worried about their status. They worried about being replaced or dismissed entirely from their jobs. And there is like a whole debate around um, the implications of automation for people who worked in jobs like media buying and media planning. Um, and there's a gender component to it too, I think, that 
um, the celebration of automation was much about trying to eliminate work that would be more likely to be done by women working in agencies, um, while elevating uh, the men who worked in management or directing roles within uh, the media department of an agency. You know, their work was elevated, so they kind of like um, they benefited from. There was certainly the anxiety about the work. There was anxiety about, um, you know, people being devalued or de-skilled or undermined in their status. Um, some of the interesting things I, I find were about uh, how people challenged uh, the language that the operations researchers would use, the way that they brought this, like, mathematical vernacular in that uh, was very impressive and intimidating and hard to argue with. Uh, and yet people said, look, they, you know, they're using this fancy lexicon of words so that they don't actually have to explain what they're doing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's perceptive in that it recognizes the power of language and of what uh, the media theorist uh, Harold Innes would call out monopoly of knowledge, basically the ways that these experts could sort of establish themselves as like a priesthood who control this particular area of knowledge uh, and promise these great things that only they really knew how to use. Um, wait, so yeah, there was um, lots of anxiety about quantification and how people whose jobs depended on that would fit in. And I mean, in some sense, there was even ambivalence among the people who stood to benefit from these things. People in the media department, for example. Um, you know, the media department uh, gets elevated in status along with computerization, partly because when an agency invests in this expensive uh, equipment, it needs to deliver something pretty impressive. And so, you know, media departments become the center or the focal point for all sorts of extravagant claims about futuristic and optimized media buying and all the rest of it. Um, and yet, in some ways, the working media professional benefited from ambiguity and benefited from it not quite being a science, you know, that gave some room to maneuver to, you know, deflect blame for bad campaigns, um, to claim to have some sort of special expertise. And so I think, I mean, one of the fascinating things just, you might say generally about the advertising industry and its efforts to become more like a techno science is that, uh, it's just never quite sure really wants to reduce advertising to a science because there are a lot of people who live and benefit, live in and benefit from the mystery of it all. Um, so, yeah. Um, so those were some of the critiques uh, that were happening. Yeah. And then something you do a great job of is sort of outlining what you call the building blocks of ad tech, sort of programmatic, 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 the programmatic aspects of it. <laughs> addressability shopability accountability um you see how i like ease my way through that one but um even though sort of ad tech claims to generate this sort of evidence of like oh we know exactly what the audience is paying attention to and exactly how the consumer is going to behave um there's this problem of attribution that it seems like ad tech has not really solved can you talk about why that is and why that remains a challenge so the idea of attribution is basically, uh, it's this dream of making essentially causal claims about the effects of advertising. So you want to be able to attribute some sort of outcome like a purchase or a 
today, like someone downloading an app, you want to attribute those marketplace outcomes to the media or advertising events that cause it. I mean, the, the classic formulation of this sort of attribution anxiety is often uh, uh, credited to John Wanamaker, who was a department store magnate at the turn of the 20th century, who's the uh, something to the effect of, I know that half of my advertising is wasted, but I don't know which half. Attribution is like the dream of, you know, conquering that anxiety and figuring out how advertising works. Um, and operations researchers burst onto the scene basically promising that that was one of their calling cards was that they were going to get much better than anyone had done so far at measuring the effectiveness of advertising and then furthermore at like predicting and intervening in the future effectiveness of advertising. Um, but it's emotional, it's a really difficult problem to solve. I mean, if you think about like what it would take to really say this advertisement caused this outcome, first of all, you of course need to like all of those events need to be visible to you. You need to be able to measure or track the exposure to the advertisement and the eventual uh, marketplace behavior to know, you know, that the order of causation was correct and everything else. But you also really need to take an inventory of ever every other possible intervening factor that could have influenced someone to make that decision. Right? How do you know that because they saw that ad and then later bought that thing that they didn't actually buy that thing because they talked to someone along the way, or you know, it's any number of things that could intervene, and which are outside typically uh, a marketer's view. Um, and so it's this like really tangled knot that's hard to uh, untie. And yet this like quest for, for trying to measure and determine advertising effectiveness has been enormously productive for intermediaries in a business who will claim to make progress on that, primarily by increasing surveillance, right? Like the, to do attribution, you need to monitor more stuff. And so it's been an engine, this anxiety around attribution is an engine for all sorts of efforts to, you know, to collect data, to quantify, to track people as they go so that you can get a better understanding of how the ads are working. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think actually, just to say one more thing about that, I mean, I think one of the big takeaways from looking at this, and this is this is the, the affordance I describe as accountability, where I mean, like literally the ability to take it to it. Wow. Um, is that these efforts to to study or to like measure advertising effectiveness and try to prove advertising effectiveness are probably more important than like what I think of as the reality of advertising effects. The effect of bringing together all of these people to try and monitor what people are doing and prove this relationship between uh, advertising events and marketplace outcomes has had enormous consequences. So like the interesting effect of advertising effects is bringing these people together rather than thinking about like how an individual ad affects the person's behavior or something like that. Um, so it's kind of like looking for an effect in a different way. As someone who studies consumption, I take, and I tend to take like a more critical view of it. And uh, on the flip side, sort of we live in a consumer society and I could understand a sort of skeptical reader sort of reading your book and saying, well, oh, well, isn't ad tech or any innovation that helps people consume more efficiently or better a good thing? Can you talk, can you sort of respond to sort of either a skeptical or even critical view of um, sort of 
some of the drawbacks of ad tech. That's interesting. So you're saying like someone might think, well, if we better match consumers to the products that they're going to want, then that's an overall gain in efficiency and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that is definitely an argument that proponents of these technologies will make. I mean, you can, you can make an argument that discrimination could be progressive, right? We're matching people according to their needs and thoughts and abilities to pay um, in a way that's going to benefit the whole economy. I'm skeptical that that's what actually happens. And I think that what you, you know, you're talking about discrimination for profit, what you typically see more often in ad tech and data-driven advertising is that it's actually like totally regressive and it's flipped on its head in the sense that, you know, wealthier, higher value people are more competitively courted to become loyal consumers. And so when you recognize someone as being wealthy, you're more likely to offer them preferential treatment, benefits, lower prices, all these sorts of things, deals to keep them in. Whereas someone who's not seemed to be high value to you, uh, you might be more inclined not to offer those sorts of benefits too. Um, so um, I'm a little bit doubtful that it divides pro-social benefits in that fact. Um, I, I mean, I'm also really interested in the, the implications that these systems have for the structuring of our information environment, health environment, it basically just the mediation of social life and the ways these companies have insinuated technologies of surveillance and discrimination into basically as much of our experience as possible. Not necessarily because they're like extremely effective at manipulating us exactly, but what they do really effectively is turn every observable moment of sociality or attention or behavior into an investment opportunity for someone. And so are, you know, the companies that facilitate this trade and spin all this these observations or evidence into gold are enormously wealthy and powerful. Um, you know, I think Google, Facebook, Amazon, increasingly Apple as well to some degree. Um, and so the organization of a business around these twin goals of accelerating the circulation of commodities and turning these moments of existence into investment opportunities has empowered these companies dramatically. Um, and whether or not, it affects our day-to-day -day consumption of the products that are advertised. It certainly affects the mediation of our day-to-day -day lives in pretty dramatic ways, even if it's not always obvious to see how exactly they affect us and how those relationships affect what we see. Um, it's a big structuring influence. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I kind of, I, I kind of, I'm on your side in terms of like, discrimination or different can be a good thing but i think more often than not it's it's not so <laughs> i mean you could say i mean you make the argument that like equity is a progressive form of discrimination right because it's about recognizing differences in people's needs and abilities um but like what is the logic of the discrimination becomes an important question and if it's for profit then um it has in my view, I've not seen a lot of evidence that it's having pro-social benefits, but maybe someone would disagree with that. Yeah. yeah. You know, is there anything, I know you've done like a bit of other publicity for this book. Is there anything that I or others sort of haven't asked you about the process of either researching and writing this book that, um, you know, you haven't been asked, but that you'd like to share or like to talk about? 
Um, I mean, I have done a few talks about this, and it's been wonderful to get to hear people respond to it um, critically. Um, um, I can't think of specifically something that I really love to be asked. I mean, I'd love if someone asked, like, why is this book so good? I can't believe it. Why is this book so good? I don't uh, I'm just kidding. Well, um, no, um, you know, it, I get, writing a book is really hard, and it was a fascinating process. Um, and in some ways, I learned a lot about it. Uh, I mean, I didn't know very much about a lot of this stuff when I started writing the book, which makes very exciting. Also, a little bit uh, makes me a little bit anxious, <laughs> wondering how much I know. But um, yeah, um, I mean, I hope to keep doing work in this area, and I hope more people take a critical interest in ad tech. Um, and I think that's happening. I mean, I see lots of great research. A lot of it's focused on privacy for you know good reason. Um, I think we can go beyond that too, or at least to think about privacy in a more expansive sense than what some some of it does. But um, I think yeah, our work on this is going to be really important, especially as you know, laws pertaining to privacy are going to resettle the field of ad tech to some extent in terms of the sharing of information. So much of it is dependent on uh, forms of information circulation that are going to become either harder or more expensive or just illegal or, um, you know, uh, prohibited by corporate private policy. And so paying close attention to how any realignments happen uh, right now seems really important to me. Yes. Can you share a little bit about your methods? I think you were deep in the archives for research <laughs> this book. Someone, yeah. I, so yeah, that's great. Um, I'd be happy to talk about that. That's something no one has asked me about. Okay, so great. Great question. Methods. Um, I did do lots of archival research. Some of that was made challenging by the pandemic situation, obviously. But a lot of the time when I was writing this, I was was during the pandemic. And so obviously there were lots of archives that were closed to restricted access. On the other hand, there were some archives that opened up digital access to things that ordinarily they don't. So, you know, I did enjoy some expanded access to electronic uh, archives that was really helpful. So I did lots of archival research looking at, um, uh, you know, uh, transcripts, for example, from this uh, operations research discussion group that was formed in the late 1950s by a trade association called the Advertising Research Foundation. It was really fascinating stuff where, you know, it was operations research and management science specialists from, you know, across huge across the U.S. economy. Think of all the major packaged goods companies, uh, all the major advertising agencies, DuPont, IBM, General Electric, uh, and then people from higher education um, coming together to talk about this. Sometimes in hilarious ways. As I, if I recall correctly, the very first meeting of this group begins with an extended argument between operations researcher from General Electric and DuPont about what an experiment is. And they could not agree on it. Uh, I believe one of them, I think it was the guy from General Electric, said that if you, if your hypothesis is supported by the experiment, it's not an experiment. And the other people were just like, they seem, everyone seemed very positive. It, it seemed like a fun. I wish I, I'm not sure I really wish I was in that room, but I, in some ways I wish I was in that room. 
I just do that sort of stuff. Um, so I did archival research. I looked at, you know, what I could find from agencies and that sort of thing. I also started with more of like, um, not exactly ethnographic, but like participant observation research in industry spaces. Uh, this was particularly when the research was looking at television. Um, I went to lots of industry conventions. I talked to people and that led me to, to people who had, um, you know, experiences further back in time who I then talked to, to learn about, uh, some of the history of things like, um, development of interactive television of addressable advertising. Um, so there was interviews, there was uh, participant observation, and then there was the archival research that was the. Those were the three prongs, mostly, of, of what I did. And then my last question, can you tell me what you're working on now? Sure. Um, lately, most of what I've been doing is looking at this, like, move uh, toward so-called privacy-preserving ad tech. So as I mentioned, uh, people may know that, like, um, a variety of things that the ad tech business has relied on are going to become problematic for them. For example, third-party cookies, which uh, tracking companies use to you know, see what, what websites people go to and collect profiles on them, are going to no longer be supported on Google's browser eventually. Um, and then there's other privacy roles like the GDPR. GDPR makes, um, obviously, basically makes programmatic advertising legal. Um, in anyway, as in response to some of these pressures, uh, ad tech companies, uh, particularly the big ones, are you know really embracing privacy as a sort of public relations strategy, and so they're promising all these maneuvers to reproduce as much as possible the existing use cases for their technologies. Because I mean, there's no there's no real dip in the demand for data-driven advertising, right? Companies still want to target people. They still want to measure the effectiveness of their advertising. They still want to optimize by discriminating the value of people who use sync data. Um, but privacy rules make that more challenging. So um, I've been doing work to look at how these companies are talking about privacy with a number of my colleagues um, and basically the ways that they either characterize privacy in very narrow or self-serving ways um, or, you know, just basically dodge and contain the force of privacy as a, you know, altogether through various maneuvers. A lot of it has to do with like a solutionist approach, a very individualist uh, orientation toward what privacy is and what it should be. Um, and you may not be surprised to hear that many of these solutions basically help these companies consolidate their power. You know, it's more private if it's only us who has your information, right? Um, you know, if, if Apple collects the information, but it stays within Apple, no big deal and so on. Um, so yeah, so looking at this pivot to privacy and how it's inadequate and, needs to be challenged because we're in a moment when the industry is trying to renegotiate the expectations and responsibilities that it carries, um, partly through government, but also it's I think, trying to carve out this new self-regulatory space for it, where you can trust these companies to do privacy because they have new technologies, um, privacy enhancing technologies as they call it. But I think all of this basically 
sidesteps all these bigger questions about why it is that we really care about you know, data collection analysis, the power implications, that element of discrimination that's not covered by treating data anonymously, right? That doesn't doesn't matter if you know who a person is if you're if their experience of the world is still conditional on evaluations of them based on their data. Uh, so yeah, so dealing with this privacy preserving ad tech and its problems is what I've been working on lately. Oh boy, the privatization of privacy. I yeah, that's great. Actually, we use I use that term in this paper. We have a, a paper coming here. I um, the number of my colleagues. That, should I like name check them here? Or uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, working with uh, Sarah Myers West, Ido Savansvia, and Patrick Parham uh, with the University of Maryland. We have this paper uh, uh, that we describe as like this cynical resignation toward privacy. There's this idea. And stop me if I'm talking too much. But there's this. Uh, there's this theory of like uh, digital resignation that tries to explain the so-called privacy paradox, which is like, okay, people say they care about privacy, but then they still submit to all sorts of forms of surveillance. So, you know, they agree to the terms of service that extracts their data. They don't really care about privacy. And this idea of digital resignation says that, well, they do care about privacy, but they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. They feel powerless to change the set of circumstances, which if they could, they would rather change. Um, and so we were invited to write something about this topic and we kind of flipped it on the head on its head and was said, okay, what if instead of thinking about how consumers are re resigned to being, you know, having their privacy invaded, what happens when the comp when companies whose business models are based around commercial surveillance? resigned to the importance of privacy. Like what happens when they have to at least claim to take privacy seriously? And we talked about how they treat it through this like very privatized notion of privacy, um, which, you know, people who know about critical theories of privacy will know that like privacy is actually a very, has a social quality to it. It's very much about networks of people. It's very much about public life, right? Um, it's not about individuals. And so the idea of both, treating privacy at the individual level and also treating it as a problem that should be handled by companies privately. Um, we think it's like a, an effort to enclose privacy within a particular set of relations that are not fixing a lot of the problems that we should really be caring about. So privatized privacy. Exactly right. Dr. McGuigan, thank you so much for this discussion. Selling the American People, Advertising, Optimization, and the Origins of Ad Tech. It's a great read, and I encourage our listeners to obtain a copy and learn more about these topics. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.